In life, we can pursue a lot of things. Uh, There's a lot of different areas that we can aim or direct our life towards. There's a lot of different targets we can have. Um, Some that that impact our lives uh, greatly are, you know, making decisions for, say, uh, someone you want to marry or or for someone you love or making decisions based on, and this is one that that impacts a lot of us, uh, money, wealth. Sometimes we decide where we're going to live based on where we can get the most money. Sometimes if you talk to high schoolers who are thinking about what they're going to do after high school, whether it's college or whether it's getting a job, one of the major contributing influences on that decision is money. Uh, Sometimes when you're thinking about who you're going to marry, one of the decisions, uh, one of the the elements that factors in is money. Uh, Money is something that impacts just about every decision that people make, especially major life decisions. They're often impacted by money. There's an extent to which that's unavoidable. Uh, We live in a world where you kind of need money. Uh, Even in the first century, even among the earliest Christians, they recognize that. Jesus, uh, I think, recognized that that's a fact of life. But what can happen with that, and it can happen with anything that you end up using to make decisions in life about, is it can grow to have a misplaced priority in your life. At the end of the book of 1 Timothy, which that's where we're going to be in our lesson, Paul has some strong warnings about letting letting money become the primary pursuit of your life. And he does something really interesting in this passage. We're actually not going to be talking about money in the lesson tonight. Uh, But I'm going to introduce it by talking about money because that's how Paul ends up making this really profound point. He talks about the fact that there are a lot of people who get so focused on money that they end up pursuing it at all costs and they love it. And so it leads them into every type of hardship and sin and immorality imaginable. Uh, This is that famous passage, the love of money is the root of all evil or of all kinds of evil. Uh, By loving money, there's not a sin you can't commit. It's like whether it is a love of money can drive you certainly towards greed. It can drive you towards cheating. It can drive you towards dishonesty. It has driven people towards uh, adultery. It has driven people towards a divorce. It has driven people towards hatred. It's driven people towards murder. It's driven countries to go to war with one another. It's like the love of money has caused every problem you can imagine. Horrible problems in this world. And Paul is going to address that, and he's talking to Timothy about what type of message he should be preaching to the church there at Ephesus. And that's one of the things he needs to warn people about. And when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, he will discuss some of the the dangers that have befallen people uh, because of a love of money. If you look at what he says in verse 7, he says "This this is actually a really important mindset to have. He says, we have brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. That's powerful to say. That's hard to actually do. It really is. It's hard to say, I have food, I have covering, I can get through the day. That's all that I need. What we, what we often want is, yeah, and I want to know that I can have that for the next 30 years too. So I want to make sure that that's, and, and we, we, we like the idea of being content with that, but, but it's hard to be content with that. But that's one of the goals of the Christian life. That type of simplicity in what we think about uh, really matters. It's right after this that he mentions those who want to get rich. Those who desire more than they actually need. Those who want to build up excess. Those who, as Jesus says, aren't satisfied with their big barns that are full. They want to tear them down to build bigger barns. And and he talks about that idea in verse 9. 
And he says, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And by longing for it, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so he describes those who want to be rich. Now, there's two types of people who want to be rich. Those who have money and those who don't. Uh, oftentimes, both of them <laughs> fall into that category. Uh, and so this one right here is kind of a universal warning about that. When you get to verse 17, though, he shifts his focus not so much to those who want to be rich, but to those who are rich. And in verse 17, this is what he tells people who have money to do with it. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't fix your hope on like the money you have in your account. That is uncertain. That might not be there tomorrow. There are things that happen and, and people are shocked daily when they thought they had so much security and they come to find out that that actually was a, a lot flimsier than they realized. God's never flimsy. God you can always trust. So if you're content with food and shelter and your hope is set on God, you're in a pretty good place for keeping your contentment and your peace and your joy no matter what happens to you. If you have those things, you can be content. So don't fix your hope on money that might be there and might not. Fix your hope on God. Don't fix your hope on what God gives you. Fix your hope on the God who gives it. And so then he goes on in verse 18. And if you're going to have these things from God, that's fine, but it comes with responsibility. Having money comes with obligation. He says, instruct those who are rich to do good, in verse 18, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. And if you're doing that, verse 19, you're storing up for yourselves treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So if you're going to have money... Be sure you're generous with it. Don't be conceited. Don't think you're better than other people. Don't fix your hope on that money. And be willing to help people out with that money. All right, so those are his instructions about wealth. Don't love it and crave it. That will lead you into ruin and destruction. And if you have it, don't trust it. Trust God and be generous with it. But then right in the middle is where our lesson is going to come from. And it's this important passage that is sandwiched by these other things that people can pursue. And what Paul is going to say is, I want you to pursue something else instead. If you're truly going to serve God more so than anything else, you don't pursue money. You pursue this. And it's those verses right in between. It's a powerful message about what the man of God aims his life towards. What the, the child of God, what the person who wants to be a faithful servant of Jesus, what their primary focus and goal in life is going to be. And the reason this is important especially connected with the lesson this morning, is this is what Paul at the end of 1 Timothy is telling Timothy, this is what I want your life to be about. This is how you ought to aim it. This is your purpose and your, your drive, and, and this is what uh, ought to be your, your goal destination in life. When you get to 2 Timothy, it seems that years of frustration and of, uh, of perhaps being silenced by people who are not listening to him have caused him to have some fear, some timidity, perhaps some shame. And Paul says, I really, we need to rekindle this flame in you. We need to get it going again. But what he's encouraging him to do is to go back to these aims, 
Go back to this pursuit in life. So he ends 1 Timothy by saying, this is what matters more than anything else. Pursue these things. Don't pursue wealth. Pursue this. And then when you get to 2 Timothy, he's encouraging him, don't forget what really matters most in life. Don't forget about the hope you have in Christ. When you read through this passage right at the end of 1 Timothy, you get a beautiful picture of what the life committed to God above anything else looks like. And it actually, I love the way Paul describes it because he gets emotional in it. And it turns from just instructions to actual worship on Paul's part. He ends up, uh, there's, a, there's a Greek word, uh, uh, and we, it's actually an English word too, doxology. Um, and uh, doxa is the Greek word for, uh, for glory. And this is, it's a word of glory offered up to God. It's a word of praise. And, and it's, it's a doxology is sometimes Paul is writing and he gets so overcome with his love for God or his, uh, gets emotionally wrapped up in the point that he's making that he cannot help but stop and worship. And that worship like pours out on the page. And you have that right here. So it's a really, it's a really cool passage because it's instructive to us about what really matters most in life. And then it also is a reminder of when you actually do have an, a life aimed towards God, you cannot help but think about who he is. And when you do that, you can't help but worship. God is so far beyond what we could imagine or hope or dream. He certainly is worth more than money. And so don't fix your life on those things. Fix your hopes on God. He's so much greater. He is what life is really all about. So let's dive in. Um, Chapter 6 and verse 11. Instead of the love of money, he's going to encourage Timothy to pursue some other things instead. Verse 11 says, but flee from these things. Flee from a life that's focused on trying to get more and more and more and more. That will lead you into all kinds of hardship and ruin. Flee from that. And you, O man of God, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He gives a list of six really important attributes right there. And some of these we look at, and I think some of these we... um, we perhaps value uh, very obviously there at the forefront of what we think Christianity is all about, well, like faith and love. We, we're big fans of those ones, righteousness even. Uh, some of them we might not always think of as what our primary aims and pursuit ought to be. Pursue patience or perseverance. Pursue gentleness. Pursue godliness. When you look at these words, you're getting the idea of someone who is found right and just in God's eyes. When God looks at this person, he doesn't see guilt. He sees righteousness. You're seeing the life of a person of godliness who, who tries to embody the characteristics of God and the way that they treat others. Uh, you're looking at a person whose life is aimed on the imitation of God in the things that they do and in the things that they say. When you look at faith, you're looking at someone who has given their loyalty, trust, and complete allegiance to God and to Jesus Christ. Someone, hey, you know, faith, I think, is is much more than sometimes we discuss it as, uh, as merely believing a few facts about something or believing about God. Or even, uh, you know, sometimes we use it, and it's hard not to. I, I, in fact, I did it in the lesson this morning. I used faith to describe a commitment you have to something that, uh, that sometimes you can't prove. You can't prove it, but you still believe it, and we call that, that 
covering that distance there, that leap, if you will, uh, faith. And, and I, I get why we do that. And I, again, like I said, I did it this morning uh, in the lesson. And that's, that's a way we use the word faith. But I think, do think oftentimes more than that, faith is an act of trust. And yeah, you might not always have a demonstrably provable uh, uh, like scientific you know, study that demonstrates why you act, well, act out that trust. But it's an act of trust based on, often evidence, based on uh, the character of another person. Like, for example, I could not prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, based on some laboratory experiment, that my wife loves me. I couldn't, you know, I, like I, there's no there's no way to like scientifically verify that, but I think she does. Uh, fingers crossed. No, um, but no, I have faith that she does, and it's it's not based on a, a just a lack of evidence. It, she acts like she loves me, and I know her, and, and she has the character that I know and that I trust, and and so you have faith in something, and and when you give your complete loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. That's what this word is. It's not saying necessarily just that you believe something without evidence. No, I think there's plenty of evidence that he actually is the king of kings and the lord of lords. There's plenty of evidence that we should do it. But it's that act not only of believing it, but then also acting upon it in who you are. Giving him your obedience even. Giving him your loyalty. Giving him your allegiance to where your life is now one with his. And you're going to serve him as your king. He goes on to say love and perseverance. Love is so often in these lists, number one, uh, to start off the list, but love is the defining characteristic of Christianity. It, there, aren't many, there aren't many words that you could say, God is that. But you know what? Love is actually one of those words that's used in the New Testament to say, God is love. And that's a really remarkable thing to say about God. Uh, it's an incredible uh, description, and it should hopefully illustrate to us the priority of love. If you don't love, then you don't know God, because God is love. Uh, if you think that you can love God and know him, and you don't have love for one another, then whatever you think you know, it's not God. Uh, and so like Paul or John actually makes a really strong link between a knowledge of God and the practice of love. When I read 1 John chapter 4, it, is a, it reminds me of, you know, there are times people want to grow to know God better. And there are times people want to grow in their walk with him. And you could even be asked, you know, how is it that I come to really know God? How is it that I can grow in my, my relationship with him? And I think there's a lot of things we can give that are really good advice. Uh, read your Bible. Pray. Do what he says. You know, I think all of those things, when you, when you pray to God, when you read words of God, and when you actually try to live those words out and you obey the things God has said, all of those are really, really helpful in coming to know God better and all of that. But you know what John says? Love one another. One of the best ways to actually know God is to love because God is love. And the one who does not love doesn't know God. If you want to know God, practice love towards your brethren, and then you'll be able to experience him in some pretty profound ways. Love is, is essential for the unity of the church, for the growth of the church, and for our growth and our walk with God. And he says that's what you ought to be pursuing. Don't pursue money. Pursue that. Pursue love, godliness, righteousness, faith. Pursue 
perseverance, um, the idea of long-suffering or patience, uh, being able to commit to something for the long haul through the good times, but then also maybe especially through the bad times. Um, I just, uh, I just, this weekend there was a church meeting out, uh, and it was in Sevierville, and they were having a retreat there, and I, I drove out there and gave four different lessons on uh, marriage, and it was a marriage retreat. And, and so I've been thinking some about marriage, and one of the things that you have to think about when you think about marriage is the fact that there are some really good times we should try to enjoy those times and emphasize those times and multiply those times. We want there to be more good times. But there are hard times in marriage. Sometimes those hard times have nothing at all to do with your spouse, and they couldn't have prevented it anyway. Sometimes the hard time you experience is you lost a spouse. Or not a spouse. That would end the marriage. Uh, You lost a parent. Or you lose someone that you love and you're experiencing grief. Sometimes those hard times are you lose a job. Sometimes you move to a new area and you feel like you don't know anyone there and you you don't have the relationships you once had. There's all sorts of things that can put strain on a marriage that have nothing to do with your spouse. But those problems could end up affecting your relationship with your spouse. Or sometimes the problems are spouse-induced problems. Uh, Maybe they are... they break promises to you. Maybe they are not living up to uh, their expect your expectations of them. Maybe uh, they have uh, been unfaithful. You know, like there's all sorts of other types of problems that can emerge in a marriage, also. And for any marriage to work, you have to recognize the person you're married to is going to fail because they are a sinful person, and they're going to let. They're not always going to be the perfect person God called them to be. Probably it's helpful to realize that you won't either. Um, If a marriage is going to work, you have to have patience with that person and perseverance through difficult times. If a marriage is going to work, they're going to have to have that for you also. When you see a couple that has been together 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, you're not just seeing long marriage. By looking at that, you're seeing patience. You're seeing faithfulness. You're seeing uh, a love that endures. You're, you're seeing forgiveness. There's no way they've gone 50 years without forgiveness. You know, there's no way that has happened. Like, all of those things become a, a picture of what marriage for that long looks like. Well, in our relationship with God, I think a lot of that's probably going to be true too. God's never unfaithful. But there will be strains in the relationship, usually caused by us, uh, but sometimes also caused just by external forces outside of our control, whether it be uh, persecution or whether it be grief or whether it be depression or whether it be all sorts of different things that can put a strain on that relationship. If a relationship with God is going to last for a long time, we need to be people of patience. God is a God of patience. It's remarkable how patient God is when you read through uh, the Bible. God is patient with some very knuckle-headed people. Um, that's true throughout the Old Testament. That's true throughout the New Testament. That's true in my life. Uh, God is patient with people. Perseverance is an essential part of this relationship. And that is what we ought to pursue beyond money or beyond wealth. And then finally in that list, he mentions gentleness. And again, that's not something that I always, to me, that one is a little bit surprising to be on the list. I mean, I I get the other things as being core ideas, like living like God, or being righteous, or loving, or um, even, uh, you know, persevering through difficulties and being faithful. But then also he adds there being gentle. 
And I think especially for the job Timothy has, that's an important, that's an important part of it. If you're going to be teaching people, you, you can teach people without being gentle. And sometimes people like that. You can get a certain type of, of like following if you're that kind of abrasive guy who always sounds uh, so stern and always sounds so confident in everything that they say. And there are people who are drawn to that. But what tends to happen is that type of ministry, while it can get a good, strong following, is alienating a lot of people along the way. And I tend to think that it's hard to get people to follow Jesus. Um, It takes a huge commitment. It takes a lot of faith and trust. It takes a complete and utter change of life. That's a hard decision for people to make, and it's awesome and exciting when people do make it. I don't need to make it harder by being unnecessarily cruel or abrasive or, uh, or uh, you know, by refusing to approach it with gentleness. If the gospel is offensive enough, I don't need to make it worse. Uh, and I think that's part of what Paul is trying to tell Timothy. If you're going to be doing this difficult job and you're sometimes going to have to cover difficult truths and you're messing with people's lives, do so with love, do so with faithfulness, do so with gentleness. That's an important part of it also. And so all of these are things that Paul is telling Timothy to pursue, pursue these attributes way more than you would pursue money, which can lead you to ruin these things. They might not be high on most people's list when they're thinking, what do I want to do with my life? When the high school students are graduating high school and they're thinking about college, thinking about a career, thinking about a degree, they're not always thinking, what will make me the most gentle? Uh, What will make me the most... A lot of times they're thinking about money. Paul is telling Timothy, it'll be better for you. It'll be better for your walk with God if you pursue these other things. Why? Well, you keep reading and uh, you'll get some, some good answers why. But he tells him in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Hold fast to the eternal life to which you were called. Uh, that idea of fighting the good fight of faith. You know, a lot of people know how to fight the good fight. Uh, or let me rephrase that. A lot of people know how to fight the fight, but they don't always know how to fight the good fight, and they don't always qualify that as the fight of faith. Um, sometimes people want to fight the fight, just whatever fight that they think needs to be fought, they're going to get into. Some people might even fight good fights. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile thing to contend for, but they'll do so either with insult or with violence. And what Paul is saying is our fight is of, is of a different nature than that. You have a good fight to engage in, but it's a fight of faith. And it's a fight of obedience to Jesus. And it's a fight where there may... This is why gentleness is important. Because if, if someone's going to be... If someone's going to lose this fight, they better not lose it because you were responding to them in an unnecessarily harsh way. Uh, it's a fight that you even approach with gentleness. It is just interesting the, the contrast between pursue gentleness and fight the good fight. Those two ideas seem to not be mutually exclusive. They come one right after the other. His next word after gentleness at the end of verse 11 is fight in the, in the beginning of verse 12. Uh, you're supposed to read those together. This is a fight that is, 
that you engage in out of love and out of faith and with gentleness for the purpose of godliness and righteousness. This is a fight about salvation. It's like a fight where you're trying to get what is best for the other person. You're trying to get more faith in Christ. That's the type of fight that he wants him to engage in. But yeah, it's going to be hard. Fights are hard. It's going to be dangerous. Fights are dangerous. But you engage in the good fight and you get engaged in the fight of faith. And by doing that, verse 12, he tells him, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Um, remember in the lesson this morning at the beginning of Second Timothy, he talks quite a bit about the calling. Um, he'll say in verse 9 of Second Timothy chapter 1, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Uh, the idea of the calling is is mentioned a couple of times, but the, it's that God has called us to something very valuable. Right here, he mentions explicitly, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God calls us to be part of life forever. Uh, he'll again mention the idea of immortality. Uh, that's what Jesus brought about through the gospel. Take hold of that life. And at the end of verse 12, he says, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he reminds him of, of a commitment that he made way back then. Remember in the lesson, you know, this morning, the beginning of 2 Timothy, Paul or Timothy seems to be growing a little bit weary in this journey. And you have to remember who saved you, who called you. Remember when the gift was given to you through the laying out of my hands. Like remember earlier days of stronger faith and of commitment to Christ. Well, right here at the end of 1 Timothy 6, he's saying, remember the good confession you made. You, you made an, a promise in front of a lot of people. That's one of the benefits of the, I think this is a reference to the, the pre-baptismal confession. Uh, you don't have a lot of explicit references to that in the Bible, but I do think you have one right here. Er, since the earliest days of Christianity, uh, there has been uh, the, the act of prior to someone's baptism, them making an actual statement about faith in Jesus, them making a statement about why they are doing this, and then putting their trust and their faith in Jesus. And that would be done in front of witnesses. And that is, I believe, what Paul is reminding Timothy of right here. You fight the good fight right now. You take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and remember that good confession that you made. There are a lot of people who heard you place your trust in Jesus, continue to honor that oath. Continue to honor those words that you made. He's going to do something interesting with that good confession here as he continues to make his point. But if you make a promise to people, if you tell a group of people that I believe that Jesus is the King, the Son of God, He is my Lord, I'm going to live for Him from this day forward, well, when the going gets hard, that doesn't mean you can give up on that promise. You keep with it. You remember it. And you carry that with you. I think that's you know, on, the, on your wedding day, when you say to your spouse, uh, you know, uh, I, Travis, take you for richer or poor, for sickness and health and good times and bad times, until death do we part. You've made an oath and a promise, and you've made it in front of a lot of people. Take that seriously. Even when times get hard, it's really important to remember that you made that oath. Well, right here, I think that's what he's saying to Timothy. Remember that oath that you made and pursue that Make sure that that doesn't get lost in the hardships that are going to come. In verse 13, this is where Paul 
says, I charge you. Um, you'll see this sometimes in Paul's letters well, where he's making his points, he's speaking about really important matters, but then he'll kind of stop and say, and here's the challenge. This is what I urge you or I charge you or I, uh, I implore you or I beseech you, whatever your translation wants to say. Uh, this is what I beg of you to do. This is my challenge to you right now. He says, I, cha- uh, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So notice he's building up this charge. He says, I charge you before God, and he's the one who gives life. He is the author of life. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about Jesus as bringing life and immortality to light. Those words, life, immortality, and light, uh, we are either going to see them or a close synonym of them appear right here in this section. But God is the one who brings life. And so before God, you made, you made a confession in front of a bunch of people, and I'm charging you right now in front of God. God and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pilate. And so he connects Timothy to Jesus right here, saying, you guys made the same confession. You made it in front of many witnesses. Jesus made it in front of Pilate. Do you remember Jesus standing before Pilate and being asked if he is the king of the Jews or if he is the, uh, the son of God? And he responds in the affirmative. Uh, that was Jesus making a confession right there. And Timothy made that same confession. And so you have made the same statement about Jesus that Jesus made. And so before Jesus and before the God who is the author of life, I charge you in verse 14. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You keep the commandment. Um, What exact commandment does he have in mind? Uh, I think it might have something to do with what he was just saying in verse 11. uh, The commandment that he just gave him. uh, Where he says, flee from these things and pursue righteousness and all that. The commandment of this way of life. uh, It might have uh, something more to do with the commandment uh, like the the command to obey Christ or to follow him as Lord for the rest of your life. Uh, But he tells him that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remain faithful to him in all things until the day of his coming. When uh, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time, which God will bring about at the proper time. And so he's giving him a direction for the whole rest of his life. This is what I want you to do. I want you to remember that you made the commitment to do this in front of many witnesses, and I'm charging you right now to do this in front of God and in front of Jesus. This is the direction of your life, and I want you to do this throughout the rest of your life until the day that the Lord returns. We don't know when that will be. That's something God will bring about in his own time. And as he says that right there, he starts to think more about the God who gives life and the Jesus who made that good confession. And he begins to reflect upon them. And Paul then starts to write about the uniqueness of God. And if you're comparing him to the other things we have in this life, whether it be other rulers in this world, Paul's going to do that. Or you compare him to money, which Paul's going to do. You will come to see that God is far supremely, unquestionably above them all. He says of God in verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. 
That's an interesting phrase right there, the blessed and only sovereign. That word sovereign um, is actually used a, a few other places in the Bible, but it's also used outside of the Bible. And here's the thing, it's used of people. Uh, it, it, when you say he's the only sovereign, you could say, well, there's other people who are called this word. Um, it's kind of like, imagine the word king. If you were to say God is the only king, what is it meant by that? Does that mean there's no other human who calls themselves king? No. It means he is the one who is our actual only true king. He's the king unlike any other. This is a word that, that means like a high-ranking, mighty official, someone who, uh, who has a really high standing. And he's saying God is actually the only one who is the true high-ranking official. He's the one who has this true position of authority. One of the things that's fascinating in the Bible is how often they'll take political words and then Christianize them or baptize them so that they become a part of Christian vernacular. And this is what he's doing right here by saying God is actually the only sovereign. If you thought Caesar was, he's not. It's God. If you thought it was your local ruler, leader, if you thought it was Pontius Pilate, who might want to go by that name, it's not. If you thought it was one of these other, it's not. The only one is God. And he goes on to define that, that, uh, that understanding of this word in the next phrase in verse 15. He's the only sovereign. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Again, you have a lot of people who call themselves king. And you have a lot of people who might go by the name Lord. But he is the Lord of them all, and he is the king of them all. That's why he's the only sovereign. He's the only uh, potentate. He's the only one who is above and supreme uh, beyond anyone else. Even the highest rulers of your land, even the guy who calls himself the king of the world, who sits on a throne in Rome, none of them are comparable to the God who is above them all. Why? Verse 16. Well, let's think about this God for a second. Who alone possesses immortality. I don't think Caesar's around anymore. Uh, I haven't seen, I haven't heard about Nero in the news lately. Uh, you, can, you can look around, you can see that even those who thought that they were rulers were temporal and were destined to the same death that everyone else has. Uh, they don't have immortality. Uh, that's an interesting word, immortality. Um, it's just the word death with an awe in front of it, uh, which means not death. Uh, he is the opposite of death. Uh, and so right here, he is the one who has immortality, and he dwells in unapproachable light. I told you that we were going to see some of the same words or synonyms uh, used in 2 Timothy 1, where it says, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, right here, God is the author of life who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, he is the one that the light is so bright with him that you can't even get closer to it. Uh, he is that blinding goodness, so good that human eyes can't even behold it. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's why he says, whom no man has seen or can see. God is so bright and glorious and radiant and perfect that our imperfect human eyes aren't even strong enough to behold what that is. Uh, you know, it's pretty convenient that uh, our eyes, I think there might be designed to this, uh, are designed in such a way that most things around us we can see. And it doesn't do much damage to look around. But there are a few things that you probably shouldn't stare at, right? 
don't stare at the sun. <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. There are a few things that, that are around you every day that you have to have the wisdom. Don't stare at that because it will damage me. Uh, that means our eyes aren't, uh, they're not like, perfect. Uh, They're they're not of optimal uh, uh, usefulness. They're not strong enough to stare at the sun. That is a bright that's too light that it will damage them. And there are some other things like that also. And that's one of the dangers of an eclipse is that you think you can stare at the sun because it doesn't look so bright, but it's still going to damage your eyes. Um, There are some things that uh, even when you look around you, you can see all this stuff, but there are some things that our eyes don't see. There are things that are invisible in the spiritual world. Um, I'm thinking of stories like Elisha and uh, his servant who are surrounded by uh, the armies of Aram and the servant's terrified and Elisha says to God, open his eyes. And when he does, he ends up seeing the armies of God on the hills and on the mountains surrounding them. And they were there the whole time but his eyes weren't designed to pick up on that type of sight. There are certain things that our eyes shouldn't look at because it can damage them. There are certain things that our eyes cannot see because they can't perceive those types of realities. Our eyes are useful and good, but there are limits to what our eyes can do. Well, God is of such a bright light that our eyes would not be able to see him without them being absolutely fried up and shriveled. Like that's, he is beyond what we could imagine, what our eyes could even behold. Thus, no one has seen him. He is the only true, invisible, and glorious God. He is the one who, to close out verse 16, Paul offers to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's like right in the middle of his point. I'm not usually in the middle of a point and I say, amen. You know, like that's, that's the end of a brief prayer of praise to God. To him be honor and eternal dominion. If you think that, uh, that Caesar has dominion, he, he has a kind of dominion for a brief period of time. But God is the immortal one and he is king of kings. And when you put those together, what you have is a dominion that never goes away. You have a king who is always forever eternally king, forever eternal dominion for him. Amen. And then Paul gets back to his point about riches. But that little excursion right there is a description of the way our lives ought to be directed to the only God who is the perfect aim or target of our lives. Uh, Yet, don't look too closely at the target. It's too glorious and bright that uh, your eyes can't even behold how wonderful he is. Uh, And so I love this passage, and I think it's a beautiful reminder to Timothy uh, for his faith, for his ministry, and for his life. And I think it's a, a good reminder for us as well. So I guess ask yourself, what is it that really do I spend most of my time pursuing? Do I spend my time pursuing a little bit more money in the bank account, a little bit more security for my future, a little bit more uh, uh, financial uh, you know, rest knowing that I'm, I'm better set up, or do I actually spend more time and more effort and more uh, exertion actually pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness? Uh, am I engaged in the good fight? Uh, do I, uh, am I taking hold of the eternal life to which I'm called? 
Do I reflect upon that good confession that I made and on the glorious God uh, to whom uh, we made it? Um, I think those are important questions to ask ourselves daily to try to get the right perspective on the way to live in the world that God has made. If there's anyone here tonight uh, who would like the prayers of the church or if there's anyone here who uh, would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known. You can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.